0: You may have seen there was a headline in The Telegraph saying that Poland uh, will be wealthier than Britain by 2030. Um, and so on this path, you know, they are they're on their way if, if uh, trends continue to overtaking, you know, the, the historically the wealthiest country in the world. right?
1: Of Socialism podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, your host, and in this episode, I am joined once again by Dr. Matthew Mitchell. Matthew Mitchell is a senior fellow in the Center for Economic Freedom at the Fraser Institute and an affiliated senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, as well as a senior research affiliate at the Knee Center for the Study of Occupational Regulation at West Virginia University. In part one of our conversation, Matt and I talked about Poland's experience under socialism, what factors led them to attempt this experiment with socialism, and what problems they had to face while under that system. And in this part of the conversation, we're going to talk more about Poland's transition from socialism back to a more market-oriented economy. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend going back and checking that out for context before listening to this episode. But of course, come back when you are done. Uh, Matt, thank you again for joining me. Um, So we've been down the road to socialism with Poland. Let's come back again. Um, Tell me a little bit about when Poland started taking steps to transition to more market-oriented institutions. Were there some specific events? Were there key people that played a role in, in this transition?
0: Yeah, so in some ways, it, it's so interesting to look at this history because you it looks inevitable, uh, you know, from our standpoint. Like, of course, communism was going to fail, um, but in late late socialist societies, um, it looked anything but inevitable. Um, you know, there not only did it seem that the state was willing to spend, you know, enormous amounts of money uh, to make sure that there was no military. Uh, uh challenge to them but they also were even willing to use it whenever people had tried to you know break free or show some independence um you know as the czechoslovakians uh, ju- just to take one example famously found out in 1968 so um you know by the 70s and uh, 60s and 70s uh, there were s- certainly fewer true believers in poland and probably a lot fewer true believers even in the top of the kremlin um, But it didn't look like this was going to end well, right? Uh, So the economies uh, were starting to stagnate. Um, In in Poland, they had shifted course a little bit. And after decades of trying to throttle uh, personal consumption, they had this idea that the way that they could outdo the West was to industrialize quickly. And the way they could do that was to make sure that... um, people, workers didn't consume much. And so they would channel as much as they could into savings and therefore investment. And this is how they built so many uh, factories. Um, by the 70s, that had, the, the populace had gotten so wary of that and were aware of the material, the gap in the material prosperity with the West, that they really, the, the planners felt obliged to try to permit more consumption. Unfortunately, when they did this, they permitted more consumption, but they didn't have uh, the productive capabilities to actually allow it. And so they had to borrow like crazy, and they borrowed a lot from the West. And so um, the socialist countries began racking up these huge debts, and they began uh, doing what uh, uh, Adam Smith called the juggling act, which is uh, you, you rack up debts and deficits and in order to pay your debts you monetize the debt and that leads to inflation uh and so they then started having this problem of of rampant inflation now interestingly enough it was not um inflation in the official uh prices it was inflation in the black market but people were willing to pay those high prices in the black market Okay, so you've got all that sort of going on uh, economically. At the same time, you do have a shift in leadership in the Soviet Union, Um, even from Stalin to Khrushchev. uh, That was important. Uh, So Stalin uh, dies in March of 1953. Uh, Eventually, Khrushchev, uh, through a coup, uh, consolidates power. And then in 1956, Khrushchev makes the secret speech, the infamous secret speech. Um, it was uh, kind of like the molotov ribbentrop Pact. It was the, the least, uh, worst kept secret. Uh, you were all, <laughs> The only people who were allowed to know it were members of the party, and they were like allowed to take it and then read it and then give it back. Um, one member of the party, uh, and so in the secret speech, he denounces Stalin and, and is open about all of the, the um, murderous uh, consequences of the Stalinist regime the consequences of the secret speech reach poland faster than anywhere else because the leader of poland bolislaw bierut uh reads an early copy of the speech and promptly has a heart attack and dies uh and so bierut is then replaced with uh um, who has uh, like khrushchev a much uh, more moderate approach um so, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, you start to see a little bit more moderate approach and loosening of the control problem, but you still have the knowledge problem and the incentive problem, and the countries, the socialist states, just still can't produce. So, you kind of just, they, they sort of get into this uh, this sort of steady stagnation, and then you get inflation. Okay, so now, uh, 1978, a big, a big key moment is um, the Catholic Church surprises everybody and selects a polish priest as the new uh pope um so john paul ii is now the leader of the catholic church the uh soviets and the new polish leader have committed themselves to more openness and so when the catholic church says he or when the when the catholic pope says i want to come visit my home country they kind of have no choice they got to let him so he visits poland in 1979 june 1979 uh, and he's like a rock star. He is greeted by everybody there when these, these big throng uh, throngs of enthusiastic um, supporters. And he's very careful. He challenges the regime, but he does it in a very careful way. Um, he simply says three words, be not afraid. And in saying that, he really was emboldening the Poles to start to assert themselves, okay? So now the next important uh, stage in this story uh, begins with a worker so remember of course marx you know says that workers are going to r- decide that they have nothing to lose but their chains and they're going to rise up against the socialist system or the capitalist system ironically it was the workers who decided they had nothing but th- to lose but their chains and rose up against in revolts against the socialist system and the first step is a uh, a woman named anna walentinovich um, and she was a woman who had previously been praised as a Stakhanovite shock uh, worker by the Soviet system and by the Polish Communist Party as somebody who had, uh, she was such a hard worker, uh, she was sort of considered the epitome of the socialist ideal. Well, as it turns out, Anna also had a very strong sense of social justice. And so when she saw um, her boss stealing money, she did what she thought you know, she should do, and she reported it. She was rewarded for her honesty uh, by being fired. She was so well-liked in her factory that they uh, organized a strike, and the strike spread and spread and spread. Meanwhile, uh, uh, she teams up with a young charismatic electrician named Lech Walesa to form a group called Solidarity. And this ends up being, um, it's a trade union, it ends up being the first um, significant, um, or actually I think it's the first only non-state organized trade union in throughout the uh, the Soviet sphere. And within a year, this is extraordinary to me, one third of Poles were members of Solidarity. <laughs> Uh, now, so it's just very, very successful. Now, they take their, their name, by the way, also from a phrase that the Pope had used uh, during his 1979 visit. Uh, okay, so this is early 80s. This uh, the, the Poles, especially the workers, are sort of rising up. And the the Polish state doesn't exactly know how to react. And they decide to react the way that they had earlier in the regime. and quite forcefully. So it's called The Long December Night. Um, It happened in um, uh, December 1981. They, uh, December 13th, 1981, the leader declares martial law. Uh, Thousands of people were arrested. Um, 140,000 armed men are sent into the street. Uh, 200,000 poles end up being fined. Uh, 10,000 are arrested and 3,500 are imprisoned. Uh, one uh, railway worker blew the um, the whistle on his rail on his railroad in support of the solidarity movement for sixty seconds, and as a result of that sixty second uh, you know show of defiance, he spent two years in prison. So they go and they arrest uh and they arrest um, uh, Lech Walesa. And when they come for Valesa, he says, this is the moment of your defeat. This is the last nail in the coffin of communism Uh, you've overreached. Uh, Prophetic words, at the time, they probably look like inaccurate words because for the next seven years, kind of nothing happened, six or seven years. But the next big change is uh, Gorbachev. So Gorbachev comes to power in the Soviet Union, he promises a lot. He promises reform, which he called perestroika. He promises openness, which he called glasnost. Glasnost be, does be, openness does become very important for other countries like uh, Estonia because they could openly talk about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. But the biggest change for Poland is that he renounces what's known as the Brezhnev doctrine. Now since 1968 the Soviets had threatened to invade any country that looked like it was going to abandon communism or even soften communism. He renounces this doctrine and withdraws 500,000 troops uh, in December of 1987 from Poland. The withdrawal of troops suddenly opens things up to make it so that Poles can determine their own destiny. Um, and so that's kind of the long political history um, uh, eventually, Lech Wałęsa ends up becoming uh, the president of Poland. Uh, so you get, you know, pretty significant um, change in, in, in power. Uh, the next part of the economic history is um, a, a man named um, Leszek Balcerowicz becomes the minister of finance, and he push ends up pushing through, uh, pretty much supported by all political parties. Uh, quite significant and ambitious reforms. So I'll I'll end it there because that was a a long answer to your short question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. uh, One of the things that you do mention, in addition to the Pope's visit and the role of of solidarity, um, you do mention that slight increases in exposure to markets that happened during the 1970s was another factor that really undermined the socialist system there. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, this is part of this idea of, okay, well, we tried throttling consumption, and that that still seems to be leading to worker unrest uh, and occasional riots and occasional violence. So maybe let's try a more conciliatory um, measure. Uh, You could even trace this all the way back to when Khrushchev famously debated Nixon during what are called the kitchen debates, that the two countries had sponsored displays in each, uh, each other's country. So the Soviets uh, created a display in New York uh, City where they had uh, extolling all of the achievements of the Soviet space program. Um, and the Americans built a display in Moscow uh, that simply just showed an American kitchen. And in it, you see all the appliances that American consumers were able to uh, access. Um, and sort of uh, touring this kitchen with with Nixon, Khrushchev says and he pledges we're going to outproduce the Americans and we're going to uh, allow our people to outconsume the Americans. So they they stop throttling consumption, but the only way to do this in a lot in large part was to import Western-made goods, and so polls in the 70s, especially as the state uh, was going into great debt in order to permit them to do this, uh, were allowed to import goods from from the West. And so they do start to see uh, the way other people live. Um, At at the same time, of course, uh, radio and TV signals are uh, accessible in parts of Eastern Europe. And so uh, even as they try to jam a lot of these signals and um, and not permit the uh, people to purchase radio and TV sets that that obtain these signals, uh, they still, the the message was getting through. And so that I think was a a part of it as well.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating that just even these little slivers of exposure to, to markets, um, you know, we're not just trading goods and services. We're trading bits and pieces of our culture and our lifestyle. um, And that's kind of a, bottom-up way to to change the minds of people that absolutely yeah Um, absolutely
0: that's a that's a beautiful way to put it yeah
1: so so one of the things um i think we should talk about now is what what steps did they take to transition out of socialism um you refer to some of it as shock therapy Um, and you make references to the Washington consensus. So um, can you explain what those things are and kind of what role they played and, and maybe the challenges that emerged uh, through these methods?
0: Yeah. So, uh, so maybe first we should talk about the Washington consensus and, uh, you know, one point about the Washington Consensus is that it really was a consensus. <laughs> a lot of people it, it, w- across the political spectrum agreed that some fundamental change had to happen. It was called the Washington Consensus because it was, uh, uh, you know, Washington think tanks uh, essentially promoted the idea, but also wa- uh, w- Washington-based institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. Um, And the basic elements of this were, okay, these countries, these former socialist countries, clearly they're going to need to liberalize. They're going to need to privatize. Um, They should open up to trade. Um, They need to uh, substitute, you know, uh, narrow spending uh, and subsidies for firms, get rid of that, and instead have broad-based spending on public goods, have um, fiscal discipline, bring spending in line with taxes. Have a broad tax base with generally lower marginal rates, um, market-determined interest rates, uh, competitive exchange rates, um, uh, open up to foreign direct investment, um, eliminate uh, anti-competitive regulations, permit, uh, and of course, permit private property and people to start their own businesses. So that's the basic idea of the Washington Consensus. Um, I think it's actually fair to say it's it's kind of criticized sometimes today, um, but I think it's fair to say that it was not especially controversial at the time. Um, and I think it's even more important to say that um, the empirical evidence for the Washington consensus is very strong. Uh, so different different countries embraced it to different degrees. There was quite a bit of debate about the speed of implementing these reforms. While almost everybody agreed we should do it, um, some countries were more inclined to, to take a gradualist approach, and others were more inclined to to go head uh, uh, head first. The critics called those who were plowing it uh, head head first they called them uh, shock therapists. They were administering shock therapy um, to the system, and and this new this this new experiment uh, was maybe going to be worse than um, the old experiment. That that was at least their claim. Um, I. I I hesitate to use the word "experiment" because, um, for a couple of reasons. One, of course, um, the socialist regime was actually experimenting on people. They were forcing them to do to do things and not do things uh, that they wanted. Uh, you know, that was not their choice. Uh, so that's important. And then the other the other thing is that the polls themselves uh, emphasized uh, that they didn't want any more experiments. Uh, so uh, the the new um, the first non-communist prime minister of of Poland, uh, Mazowiecki, uh, says that you know he the, the, the long-term strategic goal of the government's activity should be to restore Poland's economic institutions, uh, and he he says I understand by this a return to a market-oriented economy and a role for the state similar to that in in economically developed countries. Quote, Poland cannot afford ideological experiments any longer. So from the perspective of the Poles, uh, the Balcerowicz plan to plow ahead with with going um, transitioning to a market economy, it was not an experiment. It was an end to a uh, half-century experiment that had ended in disaster. And we were now going to allow people to, to uh, make their own decisions.
1: So... One of the challenges that seems like Poland would have to face, or any country that is transitioning back to a market-oriented system from having a collective system, would be you have to reprivatize the means of production, right? What was collectively owned by the state now is going to be put back into the hands of private actors, Um, and that seems like that could be a very, very, very messy situation. Um, How did Poland deal with that particularly messy problem?
0: Well, uh, I think it's fair to say they've dealt with it in a pretty messy way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, almost all uh, of former socialist states, it was a clumsy and and messy way of privatization. And there were different strategies here. Uh, Some of them were to uh, identify uh, specific owners um, where they would try or identify potential new owners and try to sell large state enterprises to those firms. Um, that, let me back up. Small-scale privatization in most countries worked reasonably well. If it was a small business that was, you know, on, on the corner of a grocery store, often basically they just, ident- if, if it was typically the the owner, the um, the managers of the stores and the workers there they were interested in buying it, and they could just sell it to them. That happened relatively easily. It's these big conglomerates that were much harder. And one problem with the social system is it sort of had a, a problem of giganticism. Um, bigger was always better. If you compare the large the the state firms in socialist economies, they were many many times larger than the, than the biggest companies uh, in capitalist economies that was harder. Okay, so you could identify one way to do it was was to try to sell it to individuals. Um this was great if you needed somebody who had a, a you know a western manager who had a, a particular technical expertise. As you can imagine though a lot of there's criticism that this seemed to be uh you know it, it wasn't very uh open or egalitarian it, it basically kind of you know you're you're channeling it to um who it, individual well-connected people another way to do it was voucher privatization this was championed by a lot of free market advocates Um, and with this large numbers of people maybe even the whole population would get a you know uh, a little ownership of a firm and they could then sell it Uh, the problem with this so this was much more um, uh, of an open you know non-privileged type of system but you did Often end up with fragmented ownership. So, you know, in contrast, that with the case where where it's just a, you know, a couple of competent managers from the West take it over, you often the firm would end up in the hands of, of, you know, disparate people, and they didn't necessarily know how to how to run it. Um, So, uh, the the book we're writing on Estonia, frankly, uh, Estonia did it a better way. they they were quicker with it, and they kind of used uh, a middle ground between these two systems, uh, where they they didn't have vouchers for everybody. They gave vouchers to the um, workers in the in the um, the businesses, so that they kind of knew something about the business, and then could use that uh, to uh, if they wanted to, they they could take take control of it and manage it. Um, so Poland privatized, but they, it actually is kind of one of the things that they, they didn't do as well as others. They took a lot longer to do it. They had a mix of, this, of, of these privatization techniques, uh, and it ended up being a much more drug out process uh, than in other countries, unfortunately.
1: What are some of the other challenges that they faced during this transition period? So, you know, one
0: challenge is uh, what the uh, Hungarian economist uh, Janos Kornai uh, describes as uh, a transformation recession or a transformative recession. Um, every post communist uh, state went into uh, one of these recessions. Uh, Poland's was quite deep. Uh, you can imagine the sort of things, reasons why. Um, one, just take, you know, simple macroeconomics, you had rampant inflation and the, uh, the they had to get a, a handle on that, and the only way you can do that is by uh, raising interest rates to a more market determined rate. That's going to be much higher, uh, and that leads to um, disinflationary pressures, uh, and that's quite painful. As you know, Western some people in Western societies are figuring out right now, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, that's part of it. Uh, another part of it is you had to. Reallocate uh, large sectors of uh, inputs. So, it, it, for for one thing, all this labor and capital had been channeled into heavy industry. That was always the emphasis, uh, and it turned out uh, people wanted, uh, you know, use our example from the previous conversation. They wanted feminine products. They didn't necessarily want twenty pound drills, right? And so, in order to reallocate all that labor and all that capital, people lost their jobs. Uh, and so, uh, and they had to find, they had to figure out how to apply new skill sets. Um, another problem is firms were open to competition now. Now, one, uh, I think, important and clever way that Poland really committed itself to uh, a, a new direction was they, they pretty quickly lowered their trade barriers. And so, one of the very first steps was to open up to foreign uh, trade. Now, these firms not only had to compete with other Polish firms, but they had to compete with firms around the world. And if they didn't uh, produce, then they were going to go out of business and they were going to be liquidated. So um, that was a, uh, that's a challenge. You know, here are firms, uh, to go back to our previous conversation, you know, unemployment was essentially illegal. Everybody worked, but they didn't always produce. And firms could, get away with producing very little of value, and now they were suddenly exposed to true competition. Um, it did take a while even for culture to catch up as well. So uh, throughout the former Soviet uh, uh, block, and you saw that uh, whenever companies would advertise that they wanted help, they would say as a requirement, they did not want you to have any previous experience in socialist management (laughs) under the socialist system, because it was just known that they weren't very good uh, managers. So, a a lot of that takes, frankly, quite a bit of time to work its way through, Uh, and unemployment um, skyrocketed. It was a deep recession, and uh, it it was a painful recession. There's just no way way around it.
1: So I'm glad you brought up this idea of kind of cultural factors because one of the questions I was curious about is, you know, what role informal institutions like culture would play in determining whether the transition back to markets is is going to be a success or if it's going to be, you know, devolving into some corruption nightmare where instead of having a centralized system of corruption, now you have decentralized corruption and you're paying bribes left and right and and the social trust that was eroded through the system of, you know, tattling on your neighbor constantly, you know, you know what, what kind of challenges did they face uh, culturally in addition to the one that you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, here's where... Uh culture and uh, economics and and institutions all are intertwined and it's very hard honestly to kind of bring them out uh milton friedman was once asked you know what's the most important uh thing to do what are the three most important things for for a transition economy to do and he said privatize 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 Uh, later he said privatize institutions privatize um i think i would even uh amend it to say Privatize institutions and culture. <laughs> you got to get all of these things right, um, and it's not super clear how you build a good culture. Um, but it does seem to be that some uh, former socialist countries, Poland and Estonia, are the two that pop in, in my head. Uh, managed to build more of an entrepreneurial or rely perhaps on their previous entrepreneurial culture uh, much quicker than others. Um, part of this could be, you know. If you think back all the way to Marx, he had this idea that there was a natural progress to history. And right. so, you know, you start with, uh, you know, there's these first two phases uh, of, of sort of primitive, primitive socialism. Society. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and exactly. then the but, imperial slave societies. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so for him, the key was you had to ha- have uh, feudalism and then capitalism and then socialism. But interestingly enough, the first socialist state had skipped over the capitalist part. Russia was not a capitalist, industrialist society. It was a very feudal society still. Um, And so I do think if you look at, you know, compare countries like Poland and Estonia, they had a capitalist free enterprise system before they were taken over by the Soviets. Uh, The Estonians had a joke, you know, how many five, five-year plans will it take before we are reduced to the same level of prosperity as the Russians? <laughs> and so uh, if you compare that, uh, those countries with the with Russia, for example, I think having had very little experience with a genuine free enterprise, they had basically been a feudal society where the state directs things to a communist society where the state directs things. Um, I think that's some of the reason why there wasn't some of the cultural prerequisites there.
1: That's really interesting to think about because um, usually when people bring up the stages of, of history that we have to go through um, to get towards socialism, um, they bring it up as a kind of a justification of, well, it, that that foray into socialism failed because it wasn't truly what Marx thought we should be doing. You're skipping steps. And and so... Um, it's interesting to think about going through that capitalist phase uh, before entering into socialism was actually really important to being able to go back to markets. Um, yeah, that I had yep. never thought about it that way before. Um, so I want to think a little bit about you know what does Poland look like you know now and, and post that transition. You point out that their standard of living rose quite rapidly, like twice as fast as it was as growing un- under socialism. And that's that's really amazing growth. You know, what do they look like in the immediate aftermath? What do they look like today?
0: Yes. So, you know, some of these figures, if, if uh, your uh, listeners have a chance to check out the book, it's it's uh, free online at uh, the Fraser Institute. Uh, if you if you look at only one page, I'd love you to look at all the pages, but if you look at one page, look at page 75. Um, and there on, on figure 4.6 on seven, on page 75, we show uh, you know, the trajectory of real per capita GDP. So what this is, is, you know, the productivity of the typical person and therefore the income of the typical person. And it's tightly uh, correlated with, with how, what people reduce is very, very tightly correlated with what they can earn. So um, in 1970, This is adjusting for inflation. Um, These are uh, 2017 dollars. In 1970, the typical poll was earning about $5,000, a little bit over. Um, uh, By 1991, they were earning uh, $8,000. At that same pace, today they'd be earning 14,000 if if nothing had changed. But instead, uh, because of the changes that happened around 1991, the growth rate uh, more than doubled. And now they're earning thirty-one thousand, so twice as high uh, uh, earnings as they otherwise would have if they had stayed on that same path that they had been on for for twenty years. Uh, so you know, huge difference. You, you may have seen there was a headline in the Telegraph, um, the British newspaper, a few months ago, saying that Poland uh, will be wealthier than Britain by twenty thirty. Um, and so on this path, you know, they are they're on their way if if uh, trends continue to overtaking, you know, the, historically the wealthiest country in the world. Right. Uh, and so this not only led to uh, increase in uh, income, which of course allowed them to buy, you know, nice gadgets and, uh, you know, trinkets of uh, capitalist society, but it also changed, you know, their lives. So if you look at uh, in at uh, lifespan, uh, it shows a very, very similar trend. So, from 1970 to 1991, uh, the average pull uh, their his um, life expectancy rose from 69.8 years to 70.6 years. So, over that 20-year period, uh, they gained less than a year of, in life expectancy. Pretty uh, dismal, considering what the the 20th century's record in terms of increases in life expectancy, but from 1991 onward, it's been a totally different story. So if we had stayed, they stayed on that same path, uh, today Poles would be expected to live about 71 uh, and a half years. Instead, the average poll, uh, lives can expect to live almost seventy-eight years. So, you know, an increase of seven extra years of life as a result of uh, greater prosperity. So, you know, when we talk about the value of of markets and the value of prosperity, it's not just that we get to buy more trinkets; we get to buy more time on the planet, and that's you know extraordinarily valuable.
1: Right. Uh Bob Lawson always says, you know, the different that those extra years are the difference between knowing your grandchildren and never knowing your grandchildren. And and those are really meaningful improvements in, in the quality of life that we are able to live.
0: That's yeah, um, that's up there.
1: what lessons should we take away from from Poland's experience with transition? Um you know if a country like Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea was thinking of let's we've we've done this collective Experiment for long enough. Let's transition to markets. What kind of advice would would they be able to take away from from experience?
0: So, I I think a very important uh, lesson, and it's it's really in the empirical literature. It's extremely well supported by lots of studies. Is that if you're going to do something difficult, and this is difficult, I'm not. Let's no bones about it. It's a very difficult to transition. Um, the worst thing you could do is drag it on. Uh, it's, the best is to just go and, and as uh, Estonia's uh, prime minister, uh, Mart Lar put it, just do it. Um, to liberalize prices, to privatize, to get the monetary policy right and fiscal policy right, um, to introduce private property rights, all of that is, and competition and open yourself up to competition. It's not easy. But it's very clear that those countries like Poland and Estonia that that were uh, increased in economic freedom faster um, and uh, more significantly and and uh, across a wider swath of their economies, they fared better. Um, those transition economies that were the the slowpokes, um, they still are are uh, struggling. So um, it, part of the problem here is it goes back to. Um, this idea that uh, privilege is a trap. so the the pathology of privilege, which we talked about in our last conversation, you know this is the system where certain firms and and uh, certain members of society are favored and privileged. They're going to fight to keep those privileges. And it's uh, it, it's a bit of a trap. Uh, the, the famous political economist uh, Gordon Tullock called this the transitional gains trap. He wasn't even talking about um, transitioning out of a socialist economy. He was talking about simple things like deregulating taxi companies. Um, and he, he was pointing out, you know, it's very, very difficult to do because these privileged groups, they actually don't even benefit over the long run because the system is so inefficient. Um, but they stand to lose if they're suddenly opened up to, you know, exposed to competition from the outside world. So they're going to fight like crazy to hang on to their privileges, even though their privileges aren't that lucrative. Um, so that is a very difficult problem. And honestly, the only, there's, there's really only two ways you can, uh, two lessons from it. One is don't get yourself into the trap. (laughs) And then two, if you find yourself in the trap, get out of it as quickly as you can, the slow, uh, you know, painful, um, or the you know the slow gradual transition is unfortunately more painful than a quick one,
1: and those uh, people who were enjoying their privileges and have political connections would undoubtedly have extra time to figure out how to benefit from the new system, um, and yeah, structure it to their right. own advantages. Um, I have one question that I want to ask about um, related to you know what what would you tell people. Maybe younger people today who are enamored with the idea of socialism. Kind of what lessons would would you impart to them um, through the through what you've learned about Poland's experience? And kind of related to that, um, you know, given kind of the advancements in technology today, the fact that we have big data and we have AI tools and we have really powerful algorithms. Right. I know some of my students are tempted to say, well, you know, why can't we try this socialist experiment again and we'll do it better this time because we have better tools to solve the knowledge problem? Um, I know those are those are big questions, but I'd love to yeah. hear your thoughts
0: on them. Yeah, they're great questions. So again, to go back to the knowledge problem, um, the n- specific knowledge that we're talking about, it's not necessarily technical knowledge of how to make uh, you know, a, uh, a computer or a machine, you know, as the, the Soviets managed to split the atom, right. They managed to get a man in space. Uh, they managed to dig the white sea canal at the cost of 25,000, uh, human lives, but they did it. It's not a technical question. It's a question of what do people want? And the only way to really understand that is to allow the market process to work out uh, and allow markets as a discovery procedure so that we can see what people want. And if you try to centrally direct an economy, you end up with white sea canals, you end up with a uh, huge industrial in- investment in gigantic firms, and you end up with no uh, feminine hygiene products that is essentially you know, what the socialist system taught, teaches us. So there's no amount of computers or technological knowledge that's gonna help us get out of that, that problem. And also that's not the only problem. You also have the incentive problem and the control problem and, and those loom large as well. So I think that's what you know, what I would try to say to your students. Um, you know, it, it is a, uh, I think it's one of the happy accidents of, of uh, life that freedom not only is uh, has a is, is a philosophically uh, uh, appealing concept; it's also a, an economically valuable uh, commodity. Uh, economic economically free people are prosperous people. We have uh, so much data to support this. We have so much theory to support this. We don't need to be casting about for some new grand socialist scheme. We just need to let people be free, and they will prosper. So that's kind of the, the first thing I would say. Um, and then the other, your other question I think is is really valid too, is, you know, why are are we forgetting? Um, what do we say to people who don't know? Um, here's the lesson I, I would, uh, I would try to impart. So, uh, personally, I was doing a little bit of math and looking at the dates here. I realized that I was born, um, about three and a half decades after Hitler took his life. And the, that time span is exactly the time span we are now after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was fortunate that nobody in the previous generation in any way obscured the truth of Hitler. I knew exactly what national socialism under Hitler was about. I knew about all of the depravities of that that social experiment. I think it behooves us to make sure that the next generation understands all of the tragedies that have that happened with the socialist experiment as well. Uh, we need to make sure, especially those of us who remember it or have glimmers of, of a memory of it, you know, watching as as kids around around the TV, that that humans wanted to be free. They yearned to be free. And it was young people, especially who brought about the change in uh, in these countries. Um, you know, it was people who had, uh, Václav's Havel, uh, you know, ended up being, uh, you know, the, the, the first, uh, prime minister of, of, uh, Czechoslovakia. And he was inspired in part because he saw, uh, people being repressed who were trying to, you know, play music. So we need to remember that a lot of the, 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 um, Change was brought about by young people yearning to be free, um, and uh, you know it's an it's an extraordinarily inspiring story in many ways.
1: Well, Matt, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you know, in addition to the book that we've been talking about today, are there other books or podcasts or you know academic papers that you might recommend to listeners who really want to dig in and learn more about these ideas.
0: Uh, that's great. Uh, so, uh, thank you for that opportunity. So, one, this is part of a broader project called "The Realities of Socialism." We've got several books um, that are uh, in various stages. The next one that um, Pete and Constantine uh, and I are going to be producing is uh, it'll be out in a couple months. is on uh, Estonia. If the Poland story is Poland story is inspiring, the Estonian story is even more inspiring. I think. Um, We also have there's there's other books uh around um denmark and sweden two examples of of countries that are not socialist but people perceive them as being socialist um and uh singapore which is again not socialist but it offers a very interesting model so i i recommend that we've got a whole lot of um, uh materials supplementary materials that people can check out infographics and videos um a couple of books i suppose to to really uh, understand the system and and um the totalitarian state uh I, I i don't know how to pronounce his name orlando i think it's um F- uh he's he's a beautiful writer and he's got some really powerful books uh one uh called the whispers that talks about what it's like to live in a totalitarian state. Um, I very much uh, recommend that. Uh, Anne Applebaum has a wonderful book um, about uh, the Iron Curtain and what life was like. Um, And then I would also recommend um, uh, Timothy, um, I think it's Snyder has a book um, called The Bloodlands that has a very uh, interesting comparison and contrast between um, Nazi Germany and, uh the, the Soviet Union and how the two systems um, clashed and collaborated and interacted with each other in a way to, to uh, just devastate uh, such uh, a beautiful land and such uh, you know beautiful cultures uh, for decades. So it's it's a tragedy, but it, it's uh, something that we all should, should better understand And, and, I'll, and I and I might end on one note. Um, it's kind of an uh, it's an ironic, uh, sad tragedy. So, do you remember when we were first talking about how this happened, uh, how t- Poland transitioned? I talked about Anna Walewianowicz. Yeah, that's uh, she had was the heroic worker. Um, well, the Soviets, um, when they invaded uh, Poland, one of the many tragedies was what, what's known as the Katyn massacre, and they they murdered about fifteen thousand uh, prisoners of war, Polish. Uh, prisoners of war and buried them in the forests of Katyn and then, of course, denied it for several decades. Um, You may remember in 2010, uh, there was a plane crash in Poland uh, and the president of Poland uh, was on the plane. Uh, There were several Polish dignitaries and famous Poles. They were on their way to commemorate the Katyn massacre. Anna Wolitinovich lost your life on that, on that plane crash. So in some ways, uh, so we dedicate the book to her because she is in some ways one of the last um, victims of the Katyn massacre.
1: Well, thank you so much, Matt, for sharing your time and your knowledge with me and with people who are listening. You've painted a very vivid picture of the hardships that people endured under the system of socialism. But you've also given us a pretty hopeful picture about, you know, the potential to, you know, transition to something more economically free uh, that can unleash our ability to flourish as human beings. So I found this conversation incredibly informative, and I hope that listeners have as well. Thank you again.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I always enjoy chatting with you.
1: Thanks for joining us for the Realities of Socialism podcast, where we take a deep dive into the consequences of socialism as it was imposed on tens of millions of people during the 20th century. For more information, including infographics, free books, and more podcast episodes, visit realitiesofsocialism.org.